Everybody who can hear me, can I just get a wave? There we go. See, that's working. I'm glad you can hear me. Can anybody see um, Chinch's screen? You will notice, Chinch, take off your glasses and go close to the camera. Look at that. That's what real men get. That's a real man's black eye. That's what happens when you're injury prone. <laughs> Even when you're not a footballer. My knees and Achilles are fine. <laughs> my face, which is my fortune, bad. Okay. Your face is not your, for- not your fortune, Chinch, let me tell what you. What is? What is? I'm, I am struggling to find something that, that is my fortune. Your left foot was your fortune. Yes. It isn't now, though, is it? I can see Ray George. This is really exciting. It's nice to see so many faces that match names that I see on Twitter. All right, guys, would you mind all unmuting yourselves? What I want to do is to test something which is self-congratulatory, but I'd like to know if it works. Can everybody, after three, do some sort of raucous and very um, well-meaning laughter so that we can see if we want to keep you unmuted throughout for the purposes of that? One, two, three, go. News. That's pretty good. Slightly upsettingly, Chinch was the loudest laugher there, and I think he, he thinks he's the funniest as well, which is interesting. No, no, I, st- I came back from the microphone as well, but it was still booming. Uh, good technique, Chinch. Um, Thanks, mate. And finally, uh, just on this little uh, s- test, can, can everybody applaud, please, after three? One, two, three. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> that is hilariously underwhelming. Yeah. yeah, horrible. Can we have a cheer? Let's see if that all kind of ruins Zoom as well. One, two, three. Hooray! Yeah, that sounds oh. like about four people as well. Uh, right, everybody back on mute. Thank you. By the way, if we're doing best background, Chris Wright is ne- has nailed the background. That man should be interviewed on television channels. Pretty fond of Jacks as well. Well done, Jack. Let's hold on. Just hold on. I'm just going to get an England cap. Hold on. <laughs> okay here we go then the applause won't work the laughter won't work and frankly the cheering won't work so the kind of atmosphere is going to be reliant on you making really interesting facial expressions so please if you're having a good time you know big broad smiles and perhaps you know hold up a, a little paddle with the top saying <laughs> lols uh, that might work. This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Rory Smith, Andy Hinchcliffe, and a Zoom app interface filled with a virtual audience. That was the atmosphere, everybody. I hope you're, <laughs> hope you're really pleased to be part of what is essentially a great coming together of great minds. Everybody is on mute for the purposes of letting Zoom handle the amount of people that we've got on. Welcome to the first of two... SPM Live, it's not live shows, where the audience has been invited and for some reason trusted to join our conversation here on Set Piece Many. They will be partly responsible for providing the football, at least. Chinch, do you know why? What's the football today? Um, It'll be something massively topical and we'll be spanning the globe, um, answering questions which people want answers to about football. Chinch, once again, you have your finger on the pulse. However, on the top of your head, you have an England cap, and on your oh. left eye, you have a rather large bruise. Would you like to explain? Um, it's not a bruise. It is a fully-fledged black eye. I was out doing some physical training work at my local uh, cricket club, running around the cricket square, when I've, I've mentioned my elasticated bands, which I work with, my resistance bands, haven't I? Well, they have a picket fence that goes around the, uh, the cricket pitch. And to, to work my biceps, to give my guns a good workout, I loop the, uh, the elasticated band over the fence and then do some bicep curls. Sadly, 
the elasticated band rolled up the top of the picket fence, pinged off, and smashed me in the face. And this, this, this is what it caused. A I, nasty, nasty black eye. That's genuinely how it happened. I don't believe you. I think you've been to a packed beach in Dorset and got into a fist fight over social distancing. I have an elasticated band in the face. It's the only other way you get a black eye these days. Chinch, the first rule of lying is to keep it simple. That was far too elaborate to be true. It did happen. Chinch, amongst friends and indeed people we haven't met yet, you are still a complete embarrassment. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, the, the, the fine folk who are gathered will not only be providing us with some football today, they will also be providing us with some food. Not literally, that would be horrible. But what we're going to do, we are going to ask a buffalo on the call to tell us their last meal. And I look to what is on the left-hand side of my screen, and I see that the mighty Ray George of New York City is on the call. So, Ray, would you like to unmute yourself, and would you please tell us what is your last meal so that the group can salivate uh, en masse? Uh, I'm terribly embarrassed to tell you my last meal. Um, I had a can of SpaghettiOs with meatballs. Ooh, Nice. That's like from the man who thinks that, that hot dogs are like the height of cuisine. <laughs> yes, exactly. You Ray, hot dogs are the height of cuisine. They are. Apparently they are, yes. Uh, Ray, thank you very much indeed. That is Ray George, our New York City correspondent. Uh, if you have any correspondence, you can send it to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And of course, we'll be putting up videos on Twitter and Facebook of this uh, fine jamboree uh, on our SPM Live. It's not live. So our format for this show is very simple. We have chosen a select 11 of those who applied to be on the show to ask a question of the four of us. Next week's pod will do the same. Afterwards, we'll have a completely unnecessary and non-binding vote to decide which Select 11 was uh, better. We are nothing if not competitive. Some of the questions share a theme and so will be asked in batches as well to get some sort of pace going in what might be a rather bitty show. So we start on this particular SBM Live It's Not Live with a question from, and unmute yourselves, please, sir, Mr. Chris Wright. Chris, where are you? Chris is there with what Rory has already described as having the best background. And that's not at all related to the fact that he gets to go first. But Chris, you wanted to ask a question of Rory, which relates to our series uh, about the media, more specifically about the, the Manchester City and Liverpool episode, where we talked about the coverage that both teams got and indeed whether it was fair and balanced. Chris, over to you. Thank you, Hugh. So just to say, I'm a Manchester City fan who is neither an online troll or nor do I exist in an echo chamber. Uh, but yes, I do want to revisit that, the media agenda theme. Um, in, and in that episode, Rory confirms that journalists will, will merely pursue the better story and that there's no agenda against, any, against or towards any team. So can Rory define what constitutes the better story? Because in the podcast, you said that a Liverpool title win would be a better story than City win the Champions League because, quote, they have more readers. And therefore, to what extent is the better story dictated by anticipated clicks based on the size of the team's fan base? And how can any strategic approach to media coverage be described as anything other than an agenda? That's a really good question. I don't really have a... I can only speak for myself and what I think. I can't, I can't answer on behalf of, of the media um, as much as I'd like to. I, got, uh, I did a thing with an, a mate in Argentina who got 80 voices from 80 different countries to talk about the Bombonera at the Boca Juniors Stadium. And I was put down as the United States. And it was nice, finally, to be invited to speak for the United States, despite <laughs> not being American. Um, so I think with, with, with Liverpool winning the title or City winning the Champions League, yeah, you take into account size of audience. And it's, it's, the best example of that is if you read a match report in a 
Sunday or Monday newspaper or on a Sunday or Monday night or whatever, you'll see that the focus tends to be on the bigger team. And that's because the individual journalist kind of has to pick, right, where's the story here? So even if Norwich beat Man City, the, there's a good chance that the, the bulk of the stories about that game will be Man City failing rather than Norwich having this wonderful kind of incredible result. Um, and that's because, yeah, you kind of want to appeal to as many readers as possible. Uh, with Liverpool winning the title and City winning the, league, the Champions League, I think Liverpool, the, it's the construction behind it. So it's 30 years without a title. It's the fact that they went so close last year. It's now it's the kind of the context of the pandemic, obviously. Um, it's the, it's the romance, it's the colour, where a City winning the Champions League would be a great story. It's not that that wouldn't be a great story. It would be a great story on the grounds of, you know, the, the culmination of the plan, Guardiola's first Champions League since Messi, Guardiola's first Champions League since 2011, this kind of, this project that's reached its fruition. It is a great story. I just would, would say that the, journalistically, the one that you'd want to write more, because it has more, almost kind of a more emotion in it, I guess, is, is Liverpool winning the league. And that may just be a length of time thing. I think where, it's, where it, it, it isn't an agenda is that it's, it's not set out to be kind of the media thinking, right, we want Liverpool to win the league because it is a great story. It's Liverpool winning the league would be a great story as it kind of organically happens. Equally, an even better story at this point than Liverpool winning the league is Liverpool blowing the league. If Liverpool lost the league from this point, if they play then that would, be a, that would trump all of the other stories. And to me, you, the club itself is kind of value neutral. And what happens to it is what you're interested in as a journalist, which isn't defined by what you want to happen. It's just how will this play out and how, how compelling a narrative does it provide? So what, where I kind of fall down on the kind of journalist with an agenda thing, it's not so much the, what the journalists want to happen, it's what would make the most compelling story. And that can be about any club. It can be about any player. It can be about any manager. It's not a kind of... Journalists recognise that Liverpool winning the lead is a good story, so they want that to happen. As long as the journalists get a good story, they don't really care about what happens to any of the clubs. And that's where I kind of feel that the word agenda doesn't necessarily sum it up. So it's a suggestion, is it not, Rory, that the agenda isn't necessarily to why the club. It is a... It... Uh, as you said, organic agenda for the best story. And it just so happens that anybody who's on the wrong side of that would suggest that the agenda is against them. And, and Chris, I want to ask you, how would you feel would it, were it to be a situation that this agenda, as Manchester City fans, many will see it, plays out so that Liverpool win the league, City win the Champions League. Imagine that's happened. Do you think that the 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 situation would even itself out then you've had a black you will have a blank slate or do you think that it will continue along those lines even though that this 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 all comes together into to kind of one big mushroom cloud um rory thank you for that explanation i do really appreciate that and um, i as i said i don't exist in an echo chamber and i'm not paranoid about this i read articles that go beyond manchester city um, i read extensively articles about all teams not just in the premier league but in other european leagues as well and I think agenda can be a really um, weighted term to use. Decisions are made of how football is reported. And because reports of um, games are kind of redundant now because we can access the games, it's, all, it's more about opinion pieces. Um, and 
there was something as also Rory that you said in that episode where you said that you think that City winning the first ever domestic treble was a bigger story, but Liverpool sold theirs better. So so that the so the the aspects of the relationship between the PR um, department in that particular club and the journalists is also one that has to be considered. And I admit that cities could learn a few things, really could improve. But I still think by by the agenda, I, I still think that because of the way the news media operates now and the painful slow death of the print media is that clickbait is an absolutely strategic element of the way football is reported. And I, without a doubt, Liverpool and United have a bigger fan base than Manchester City because of the legacy of success that, that, that they have had. We've got another two decades to possibly reach that point. But I, you can't convince me that that doesn't play a factor. And in the, um, in, when we won the title last season, uh, the Times um, front page on their sports, on their sports uh, pullout, not on the main one, on their sports pullout, the front page was Liverpool, the back page being City. That for me is, 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 a, is a very clear evidence of the fact that an agenda has been taken because they think more people will buy that newspaper because there's a Liverpool front cover than there's a City front cover. So to answer your question, Hugh, no, I don't think anything will change because I think it's a matter of economics. Funny enough, so, well, so I, I, you can overestimate how many conscious decisions are made in the media. That if you're, if you're a journalist writing on deadline, you are not making a conscious... To be honest, you just write the first story that comes to your head. You're not, you, there's not a kind of lot of different options. You, you'll have an idea in your head of this is what... the after about an hour of a game, of this is what, what I'm going to have to write, because otherwise it's going to get to like an hour after the game and I'll have nothing written and I'm going to get shouted at. That's your, your agenda is not being shouted at. That's my agenda permanently throughout my life. Um, in terms of the Times thing, so that's, I think I said this on Twitter, one of the things the media doesn't do well enough now, given the way that the kind of, that the culture has shifted, is explain how it works. So having worked at the Times, they, what they would have thought there is, you... The, the, the Times' big editor, John Witherow, who doesn't like football, insists that the back page picture is different to the front page of the supplement. He wants it to be not, not sort of similar. So you, in, in that situation on the last day of last season, you, you do choose Liverpool for one, City for the other. To me, that's a flawed policy. It should both have been City. City just won the lead. We, I was at Anfield that day because we had to, there's only one of me and I had to make a call. Do I want to travel to Brighton? Not really. And, or do I want to go to Anfield where if Liverpool were to win the lead, the story would be if Liverpool win the lead from behind on the last day of the season. That's a bigger story than City beating Brighton as we all expected them to. And as it turned out, I was at Anfield and that was completely the wrong place. So I wrote a Man City story from Anfield. And then we did a kind of follow up on Liverpool the next day because Man City had won the lead. They were the story. I don't think that's an agenda thing with the times is balancing the, the pages. And to be honest, if you were looking at it purely from a, commercial point of view you put Liverpool on the back because more people see it you put Liverpool on the back and you put City on the front cover of the supplement which is inside the paper ideally you put City on both because they just won the lead but if you've got this strange policy that's come from on high you don't you've got you're kind of operating in a situation where you can't really you don't have complete freedom and I think there's a yeah there's a danger in it assuming that too much that happens in in the media is conscious when a lot of it is just knee-jerk what the hell do we do now the one thing where I agree with you is that clickbait is a, is a strategic decision without a shadow of a doubt. And it's why you get all these stories about Liverpool and Man United being linked with players they're not looking at. And it's because they sell, it, it, gets, it attracts readers. But I think being a target for clickbait 
is probably worse for clubs on balance. You get huge peons of praise that are unnecessary, but you also get slagged off a lot. Liverpool, Liverpool and Man United, when they are bad, really get hammered in a way that other teams don't. And the London teams are the best example of that. Spurs can be terrible and not really get slaughtered. Spurs can collapse from a Champions League final last year and not really get slaughtered, um, which is something that Liverpool and Manchester United and probably City can't. So I, I think the clickbait, again, is probably neutral. It works in your interest sometimes and against you sometimes. So it's not... To me, that's the thing. It's the club, the agenda, there probably is an agenda that might, may not be quite the right word. There may be agendas, but it's not about the club. It's purely loyalty to the story. And that can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. But it's not about kind of promoting the interests of one club over another. Chris, thank you very much uh, for getting us underway with something that we know we like to talk about. And it was a good, it was a doozy. That's, that's for sure. Stephen, you're going to come in and then we're going to go on to question number two. Yeah, I just wanted to add, really, maybe from a broadcaster's point of view and going back to Chris's initial point, that you, you perhaps have to envisage taking yourself back to the start of the season. And if you were to, to plan out a campaign and think about the sorts of things you needed to, to get in the can, the kind of interviews you needed to do if you were going to tell the story retrospectively once the season was over and try and get on top of these things in advance, to look at the, this season as the example. And it's, it's slightly skewed by how far ahead Liverpool are in the title race. That obviously gives you an advantage. But if, if the title race was a little bit closer and you were asking the question, well, what's the better story? Is it Liverpool winning the title or City winning the Champions League? You take yourself back to the start of the season and ask yourself the question, which of those two things was easier to envision? And the idea that Liverpool would be better than City in the Premier League this season would have been harder to convince yourselves of than the idea that City would win the Champions League because what with that being a cup competition and the, the slightly more uncertain nature of it, that, that's a much, it's a much stronger example to make a case for happening because very often the best team doesn't win the Champions League. The team that gets it together at the right time does, whereas, of course, the best team, as a general rule, would win a domestic league competition. And Chris, if it makes you feel any better, one of the things that infuriates those within the media the most is when we feel that uh, somebody else has an agenda that they're sticking to regardless uh, than the facts that present themselves thereafter. And it gets quite frustrating. I know, Steve, from a commentator's point of view, if you see somebody on the television uh, who has an idea of what they think is going to happen and tries to make everything that subsequently happens fit their idea or as we're using the word their agenda it, it's particularly galling and it's something that frustrates us from a professional point of view so hopefully it helps you to understand that if we see others doing it it makes it less likely that we're going to do it ourselves uh, chris thank you very much indeed uh, the thank next you. question uh, comes well there's two people so um the mighty bestowing upon the non-mute comes to ewan fraser and albert now where are you ewan and albert i can see you have unmuted yourselves love to see you both right ewan you're first uh cheers you um I thought I might have been a bit of a, a lone voice asking this question, so interesting to hear what Albert says. Um, as I felt that the, the break in the season had actually come at quite a good time for me, um, because over the last sort of season and a half, I had felt like I was possibly reaching a bit of a, a saturation point with football, with there being so much of it, so much content around it, and so much hype that it almost became off-putting. And so the break has kind of given me a bit of space I think, to appreciate it all the more. And so my, my question, I guess, is how do you think the various parts of the game will relate to each other when it actually returns? Will it kind of go back to as it was before? Do you think the narrative around the game might be a bit calmer as we all have a slightly changed perspective? And do you think 
fans might be treated better by clubs because their absence is felt more in the grounds. Uh, Ewan, thank you very much indeed. No, no, and no. There we go. Next question. Uh, no, we'll, uh, we'll d- discover a little bit more about that in a second. Albert, your question is related because it relates to the, um, the emotions that should be felt post-COVID in the world of football. Over to you. Uh, cheers, Hugh. Um, I haven't actually missed football all that much in recent weeks. Um, even in a pre-lockdown world, um, I'd often find myself getting bored quite easily during games, getting my phone out, scrolling it, you know, hitting social media. Um, my question is, what does football need to do to make me fall in love with it again? Albert and Ian, thank you very much indeed. We're going to start this with Chinch because, uh, Chinch, you um, are part of the Premier League machine. And when you heard that it was coming back on the 17th of June, how did you feel? And what, what have your meetings uh, with Sky uh, since then made you feel about how excited you are? Because during lockdown mm. as well, you had a little bit of a crisis of conscience as well, didn't you? Um, I, I kind of strangely enjoyed the, the, the time off. It's given me time to think about the season that we've had and, and what the future maybe holds. I, I do agree with you. And it's, it's something we can maybe reflect on uh, on football around the world, not just in the, in the Premier League. But we had our first big Premier League meeting yesterday about football coming back. And I, I just wonder whether fans watching games rather than being at games might just get the kind of juices flowing a little bit more and get a bit of the love back for the game. If we just went straight back into full stadiums again, games being played again, we'd just, would we just go back to where we were before? But with no fans in the stadiums um, and having to watch the games, the, the free-to-air games, being able so much more the country can watch these games. And in a way, Sky are looking at this as kind of a tournament in, in, in itself, basically. It's 64 games in 40 days. Martin Tyler was talking about it being possibly like a, like a World Cup in many ways because it's so condensed, so many games, game, day after day, game after game. Will the fans, will there be a bit more love for the game because you're experiencing it as you would do, say, a, a World Cup in South America? You know, actually watching it gets you a bit more excited about going back, hopefully, next season into the stadium again and, and enjoying it firsthand. So I, I'm just hoping that maybe watching the games, and hopefully we can do the games justice as well, it's going to be difficult for us, behind closed doors is, is never easy to commentate on. I've only done one or two games. It, it does change absolutely everything. But I just wonder whether watching games might just get fans a little bit more engaged come the start of next season. That's very much like the purists' belief that watching games in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in an empty stadium means you can, hear, you can hear the game more. You can... I spoke to Christian Strife last week, who's now my favourite person in the world, the Freiburg manager, and he said that... Um, that it's a chance to actually watch the game without seeing, without losing yourself in the emotions. That you can actually, you can, you can in an empty stadium, separate the kind of the spectacle of football from the, from the actual sport of it, and that, that in a way is a privilege that you don't normally get to see. That so you, as a fan watching watching the matches, you can start to understand a little bit more what what the teams are doing, and it isn't the same. It's not as good, but maybe, maybe it will help help people appreciate it in a different way. In all honesty, I don't know if I, if I buy that at all. I think that it does look... I've watched quite a lot of the Bundesliga. I think it's right that the Germans are playing. I think it's good that the Premier League's coming back. I think it's good that the Championship is coming back in Spain and, and Italy. I, I don't have a problem with people playing football during a pandemic. I don't think it's an immoral decision. I, I don't buy this idea that like they're only doing it for money just in the same way as like loads of businesses are, not, are just going to open for money. That's kind of the point of being a business. That's that's how you pay people who work in your business. Arsene, Arsene Wenger said a few weeks ago that, that he thinks that long-term playing behind closed doors might, might rob football of its magic. And I think that's probably right because you do, need that, you do need fans in the stadium. So in terms of what Ewan said, 
I think you may find that clubs understand a little bit more that they have to entice fans to the stadium and enable them to be as spectacular as possible. And I think the, the financial shortfall that we're going to see, at the big, especially at the big clubs, is, is enough that you, that old idea that one day the TV contracts will be so lucrative that, that they might pay fans to go, that's not going to happen because they need that money. That money is, you know, Man United and Liverpool will lose 100 million quid over the course of next season if fans aren't let back in. They're not going to wave goodbye to that. But I do wonder if they might start thinking, right, maybe we do need to create, create the best spectacle we can, which might accelerate the conversation on safe standing. It might increase kind of engagement with fan groups who might do choreos and TIFOs in, in England, which is something we've never really seen. I think that that kind of stuff might start coming back a little bit more when fans are allowed back into stadiums. In terms of whether the narrative will be any calmer, I had that thought too at the start. I hope that it would make us all appreciate the, how, how lucky we are to have this ridiculous soap opera going on that can distract us from our, from our lives, that it's a really powerful force. And it's, I found it in the last year that, that it's an amazing thing to, have, to be able to think about, to, to love football in such a way that you can use it to shut your mind off from other far more important stuff. But sadly, that's not going to happen. And what will happen is we'll come back and it will be even more toxic. And that, in a way, makes me quite sad. I find it quite funny, but also quite sad. It's one of those things that, yeah, we, we, we entered into this whole period thinking that one thing might happen because we sensed a kind of community spirit just outside of football, just generally speaking in our lives. And then for it to not necessarily to translate to something that we love so much is been a little bit of a disappointment. But they do say that absence make the, makes the heart grow fonder. So is there a sense that because we live football, none of us are players. I mean, even Chinch isn't a player anymore. Was he's he getting, ever? Yeah, well, he's getting into the plastic band. Well, we're none of none of us are old enough to remember. Um, <laughs> but there is there is a sense, isn't there, that you live your football life from those just on the outside is live vicariously through those that we watch playing football. And so, is there not by having a little bit of extra distance and yet emotionally being as engaged with it will make us love it even more? Will there not be a possibility? And Albert, I guess this is, this is for you. And we'll bring Steve in first and then I'll come back to you guys for just a quick uh, summation. But there, if, if you, it's like FIFA. You play FIFA because you want to be a footballer. You can't be a footballer, so you do the next best thing. You're a football fan uh, because you want to be a footballer for your favourite team. And so if you can, you go and watch them because you get as close as you can without actually being able to do it. And so having an extra barrier put in place to not allow you to have as much engagement as either you would normally have or you would want to have, that would almost, I wonder, make you want it, love it more in the same sense that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Stephen, to you, and then we'll go back to our questioners to see what they think. In, in terms of falling in love with football again, I think there are a couple of things that we can look forward to when the Premier League comes out of lockdown. Firstly, from the experience of watching the Bundesliga, I think you will focus on the game a great deal more in terms of what is happening in the match and the nuances of the game because there isn't the crowd around it to, to take you along on the ride. I certainly know a lot of observers in Germany have found that they are following the game more closely than they were pre-lockdown because they haven't got that ability to step out of the room momentarily when they think nothing's going to happen or to be distracted by something on their phone because you haven't got the crowd noise to alert you to something dramatic being potentially seconds away. So that's quite an interesting element. I've spoken to people involved in, in 
preparing for the return of the Premier League from a broadcasting point of view. And they are certainly conscious about dialing down the razzmatazz in the build-up to games because without crowds coming into stadiums, it would seem a little naff, a little incongruous if you were building up to matches in the way that we are used to when suddenly, you know, the picture cuts to a stadium with 60,000 empty seats and a few voices echoing around. And then the final thing in answer to whether or not fans will be appreciated when football does return to something like normality. I think we've already seen a couple of clues from that. And the, the idea, and I know Rory was, uh, was banging on on Twitter about this the other day, of these supposedly difficult to police games that we've got coming up, including Manchester United against Sheffield United. I mean, how, will, past we, Derby. how <laughs> will we ever get on top of the A for a, the A57? What, they're just going to meet up at Lady Bower Reservoir, all tooled up and have a, a massive <laughs> halfway between Manchester and Sheffield. Beautiful setting for a rumble. Indeed, it, it, yeah, the, the, well, where the Dam Busters was, of course. Uh, so, look, it's, it's, yeah, we've already seen a clue there. Football fans are not going to be treated any differently when we are allowed to fill stadiums again because we've already seen that they are being treated with this idea that they're going to turn up at empty stadiums in, en masse is, is being prepared for, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that it's going to happen. And in fact, Germany has demonstrated that it's very likely that it won't. They've had a, a De Classica. They've had the Riviera derby there as well. I mean, Dortmund-Schalke is about as close as you get in Germany to Liverpool versus Manchester United. Uh, and of course, the final thing to take into account is, as Rory was pointing out, the amount of money that clubs have lost or, or will lose from not having fans in the stadium has put pay to any thought whatsoever that ticket prices might come down in line with what is considerably more reasonable, considering how much money the Premier League in particular makes from television. Can I just say to Albert, though, that if he's on his phone when he's watching football, I mean, that's on you. Like, that's, that, you need to look inside <laughs> yourself. Yeah, because that, that never happens. And Rory doesn't bang on about things when, yeah, when, during a I game. Do you? The only one. <laughs> no, to be, honest, to be honest, I'm the same. Like, I find myself now, what, even, yeah. even, it's slightly different when it's, I've not thought of that, but you don't have the crowd to tell you what's about to happen. So you do tend, you have, kind of have to pay a bit more attention to football when it's behind closed doors. But I'll, I'll, I'll occasionally be at a game and be like, all right, just let me just see what's... You get embroiled in a Twitter argument with Miguel Delaney and you think, what the hell am I doing? This is the Champions League semi-final and he sat next to me. Can you be worried about having content to, to file? Uh, I, I tend to worry. I've got to stage now where I worry after, the, after half-time. Before that, I'm very, I'm very relaxed. What happens in the first half of football matches does not matter. <laughs> it is mostly irrelevant. Um, Ewan, are you satisfied with everything that we have said about the fact that there is no, no further engagement with fans and frankly, there'll be nothing to do uh, to help you through this, um, what has essentially been uh, an opportunity to realise how much you dislike football? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that kind of confirms what I'd, I'd been thinking anyway. I mean, I'm based in uh, lockdown in Scotland um, and the way that Scottish football has dealt with trying to sort out the league has been a, a reminder that it's just as tribal and just as childish as ever and that's not going to change anytime soon. So, yeah, kind of confirmed, I think, what I've been thinking. Brilliant. Thumbs up, everybody. There's a nice, uh, nice way to round off that uh, part of the conversation. Thank you very much indeed to Ewan and to Albert. We next move on to uh, a couple of questions. Well, there were going to be a couple of questions, but one of them is missing. So that gives Ben Joyce an opportunity to shine all upon his own. Uh, ben, where are you? Unmute yourself and tell us your question. Um, yeah, I'm really interested, despite being a Leighton Orient fan, and we never buy any players, I'm quite interested in uh, transfers and, and player recruitment. 
Um, in recent years, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United have all spent huge transfer fees on relatively as yet unsuccessful transfers of, of players such as Dembele, Coutinho, James, Pogba, um, or as, uh, as pundits might have it, the Dembele's and Coutinho's of this world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, clubs such as Salzburg, Red Bull Salzburg, Hoffenheim, Leicester City have all combined a level of domestic success with uh, an effective player recruitment strategy that has delivered huge profits on players such as Haaland, Firmino, Maguire, etc. Why are these clubs seemingly better at good value player recruitment than the European giants? How do they do it? And why do Real Madrid, Barcelona, etc. not just copy their methods? Ben, thank you very much indeed. I suppose this is a question, and we'll start with Rory, about uh, necessity being the mother of invention, or is it more than that? It, to an extent, yeah. I think it's, it, it's a subject that I, I think is really interesting. And, it's, and I've, I've, I've had the same question for a long time. Not that I'm saying that you're slowing slow the uptake or anything, but <laughs> the, it's, it's a really... Like, now it seems like Hoffenheim and the, and the kind of Red Bull empire, but before it was Porto, Udinese, Lyon to an extent, Sevilla, they've all done it. And I think, to be honest, it's just a function of the market. that They, they can be a little bit more inventive. They can take risks, because, partly because they have to, but partly because the, the sums of money they're spending mean, mean that it's not such a risk. They can go in and and take a player for four or five million euros and see what happens. Whereas if you're Manchester United, you go in for a player, that price gets doubled or trebled. Sevilla certainly can, can kind of look at it and think, well, we know that the, they, you know, we know, we, they can go and say, say to a player, look, you, come here and you will be able to, to flourish. We know that of every 10 players we bring in, maybe only seven will work out. It doesn't really matter if they have two or three that flop completely and turn out not to be of the, of the relevant standards. Um, but increasingly, I think there's a second, I've written about that certainly at some point, I can't remember when or why, or if it was any good, probably not. But the other thing that I think is, is, has been happening a lot in the last maybe 10 years is teams have a plan much more. So if you look at Red Bull, they are going for a specific type of player and that, that plan remains in place, whoever the manager is, you know, however, however well they do. They, they want youth, they want speed they want power they kind of want a bit of scope to learn they don't want the finished article they want someone they can shape in their own style of football chinch is pointing at himself i don't know that, whether that's just he's not the finished article yet or not does it, it might be a bit late chinch. <laughs> really the, 51 uh, i think it's too late i think it might be too late for you to play for red bull leipzig um the and maybe a slower german team it's possible is so, there yeah, one? i think uh no they to be honest none of them well none of them can defend so, so you might perfect. get a game yeah <laughs> But yeah, I think if you combine those two things, it's the ability to take a risk and the necessity of taking a risk and the, the sense of identity and knowing what you're looking for enables you to be, to be kind of much more efficient in the transfer market. But you probably should, we probably should remember generally that there are quite a lot of teams who have exactly the same profile and are terrible at transfers. So the reason that, you kind of, that those teams stand out is because they are the few that are good at it. There's not, there's not many who have... Yeah, that, that hit rate of, of, the, of the Red Bulls, the Sevillas, the Portos <laughs> of this world. The, the majority are crap at it. Stuart Pearce was one of those who would always say the things, the things, the things of this world. I had a dream about Stuart Pearce last night, which is kind of weird. Saucy. Um, it, what, why would it not be saucy involving Stuart Pearce, the man who has, I think, at least two Union Jacks planted in his front garden? Um, Chinch, were you pointing at yourself uh, because you thought that you were relevant to the point that uh, Rory is making, or did you actually have your own point to make? 
No, no, I was pointing myself thinking that everything that Roy was saying could be applied to me. But I, <laughs> if, if you're talking about Barcelona, Man United, Bayern Munich, Juventus, surely anyone they recruit, it's not just signing a player. They might have a plan, but surely the, the media focus on any signings that those clubs make is going to be very different than if Salzburg sign him or Schalke sign him. Surely it's the, the stature of the club. They have to think a little bit more deeply about the what it says about the club in the players that they're signing maybe as well. It's kind of a, is it kind of a, a symbol of the club? They can't just sign maybe the players that they really want to sign. They have to think, well, how will this, how will this play out with the fans and, and in terms of United and their, and their stature? Does that then maybe change how they recruit? They will have it, I would imagine, Rory, an extra layer to have to deal with. I remember speaking once to the, uh, to the chief selector for the England national cricket team who said that, that there were equal parts, ability to um, play the game, clearly, but also the mental aptitude and the, the ability to understand that from going from a county-level player to an international player is such a huge leap in terms of the scrutiny that they face. They have to be of the kind of metal to be able to handle that leap. Now, that might say might be said about a player who's coming from slightly lower down the elite section of football to be able to deal with the kind of scrutiny that you get at one of those big clubs. And in the England cricket team, they would, if a player was brilliant technically, but didn't tick that particular box, they simply wouldn't pick him because they knew that they, they would not be able to survive. So is there an element of transferring that into the way that football works? If you're going to play for Barcelona, you've got to be damn good, but you've got to be able to handle it as well. Yeah, you look at Dembélé or Dembélé. They he he has struggled, I think, as much with the kind of the expectation at Barcelona. Whereas you know Dortmund, he has one season at Dortmund where he kind of is this kind of revelatory star, and that's fantastic. And all of his foibles, like he, he has this tendency to be late for training. He's not. I think you speak to most people who who have worked with him. He's not necessarily always got his head in the right place for being a sort of international international superstar. If you look at someone like Ronaldo, he is absolutely on it in terms of his life is built around football. Usman Dembele is not quite like that. Um, that's all right at Dortmund when you're in the team anyway and you're playing really well. It doesn't work at Barcelona when you need to get into the team. They're not, they're not going to stand for it and you, you have this problem. But Chinch is right that ultimately those big clubs have to get pretty much every single one right, whereas the smaller teams don't. And the, way, the only way they can be sure, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United, Man City, that, that they are going to get them right is if they let those players sit for a year year or two at one of the mid-level sort of upper mid-level clubs if if they do all right there that's your best guide so you know how there's that always that thing about oh why don't premier league teams recruit english managers and it's because all of the english managers are in the championship and being a manager of a team in the championship is not the same as being the manager of a team that wants to win the champions league that just isn't then it's not comparable being manager of Bayern munich is a good is a good guide to how you might do if you're manager of Manchester City. Being manager of Oldham, much less so. The challenges are like massively different. And it's the same with players. If you're doing really well in South America or in a, a mine in Holland or Belgium or wherever, that's not a great guide to how you'll do if you're trying to win the Champions League. If you're good for Borussia Mönchengladbach, that's a much better guide. And that's what the big teams are looking for. Um, the interesting, funny, the interesting exception is Real Madrid, who seem to have decided that their best plan is to spend a lot of money on 17 year old Brazilians there's quite a lot of smoke and mirrors about being good at recruitment because clubs get a reputation for it and and retain that reputation often after they've stopped being quite as successful at it as they were but it lingers for a time because you associate a, a player who's gone on to great things with that club from earlier on in the in your in their career it's really really difficult 
to retain that ability for more than three or four seasons because other clubs cotton on to what you've been doing and follow suit or they poach the person who has been involved in a club's setup to try and come and do the same thing for them. And very often they're not able to do, because we've talked often on this podcast about how it's all the components coming together to, to form a, a perfect scenario for a very often a brief moment in time. And the other thing is, it's really hard to do that really difficult. And that's why the big clubs, because it's not cool to work hard. So that's why the big clubs who've got lots of money to spend perhaps aren't all that interested in investing a huge amount of time, money, effort into something that might only last for two or three seasons when they're fairly sure the money is going to keep coming in. And they know that when they spend big on a player, as has already been alluded to, that that is a demonstration that that player is already at a level that they should be able to to compete for them. The well-trodden path from Southampton to Liverpool offers a good example. Diane Lovren from Southampton to Liverpool for 20-odd million quid. Well, that was Diane Lovren's fault when it didn't work out. When he didn't prove to be good enough for Liverpool or to be able to play at a high enough level regularly enough, that was all on him. When they spent £75 million on Virgil van Dijk, you know, that, that may well have been the other way around who knows you know that was 20 million pound looked like it had been wasted on Dayan Lovren whereas the 75 million for Virgil van Dijk was Liverpool well this is a this is a sure thing and there, there can be no blowback on us necessarily you know if he fails to fulfill this then there's no blowback on the club whereas there was blowback on Liverpool for wasting money on Dayan Lovren. I think you'll find that Dayan Lovren is is by his own admission, one of the best central defenders in the world, Steve. That's but only by his own admission. Don't forget Rory. that the rest of us haven't quite come around to that way of thinking yet, have we? <laughs> the other, the other thing that we should mention is a lot of it's luck. Like a lot of it is luck, and that's why teams like like Sevilla, like Porto, like Leon, who like Hoff- I mean, even Hoffenheim stopped a little bit now, to be honest. That's why they they stand out because they can do it over the course of several years. But the vast majority of like gurus who come through this was one of our, this was an episode wasn't it at some point that it's just luck it's just that they happen to be in the right place at the right time so i just put on our chat which i'm quite enjoying although steve and chinch and um hugh don't know how to work it um that it was like when newcastle signed johan kabai and everyone sort of, sort of thought graham carl was a genius he was captain of the french champions that is not being good at scouting that's having satellite television that's all that is like you you should know if you don't know who the captain of the french champions is you should be sacked as a scout that's that's ridiculous and it's true with i mean steve walsh got got kante and mares spectacularly right at leicester but if you look across the the sort of across across his the span of his career i guess at, at leicester it was fairly obvious that it was always he got some right and credit to him for doing that but he got quite a lot wrong as well it's i think the tent there is a tendency a confirmation bias tendency i guess that we look at the ones they get right and say well this guy's a genius and we when we've decided that as we were talking about before, in terms of, of agendas, I think, when we've decided that, we just ignore all the, all the evidence to the contrary. Well, he's a genius. So it must be the player's fault if it's not worked out. You know, it must be Guido Carrillo who's failed at Southampton rather than Southampton being nonsensical for spending 19 million quid on someone who, until last week, I had forgotten existed. <laughs> well, Steve Walsh went to Everton. It didn't work out well at all, did it? He was brought in to be the, wasn't he the head of recruitment, do the job that he'd done at Leicester, and it, it didn't work at all. So everything he achieved at Leicester, you think, was luck or it was just bad luck at Everton but it's a bit it's a bit of both there's a lot more luck involved than we ever give credit for Uh, we should move on Ben thank you very much indeed our next question comes from 
Colin Boucher and um, Stephen, this is yours. So get ready, get excited. He's done almost spreadsheet levels of research. Over to you, Colin. Thanks. My question is, should League One and League Two be regionalised? Boom, pithy, like it. Thank you. Stephen. Yes, absolutely. We've talked, I've banged on about this in the past and I feel even more strongly about it now. Uh, I, I don't really see any reason why it shouldn't happen. And in fact, I don't really understand why it hasn't so far because the more money there is at the top of the game, the more those further down the pyramid are somehow trying to keep up. And it's, it's just not feasible. Look at a club relatively local to where we are now, Macclesfield, who get about average about 2,300, 2,400 people for home games, yet they go up and down the country every other game. They, they play in, a, in League Two where, they, where there's more southern clubs than there are northern clubs. They have a journey of over 500 miles to go and play Plymouth. What's the point in that? They have to go to Devon again to play Exeter. I mean, they have four games a season more than 450 miles away from home. It is utterly, utterly nonsensical considering what a small club with such little income they have in terms of a supporter base, fans coming in, you know, the merchandising side of things. They just don't pull in the money to justify doing those sorts of journeys. Their average, I think their average journey away from home they, they travel over 5,500 miles a season, Macclesfield, and that averages out as 240 miles per away game. That's like them playing at home one week and Cheltenham away every other week. That, that doesn't benefit anybody, yet they are expected to do it. We've got Carlisle and Plymouth in the same division. That journey, that round trip is further than Tottenham to Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League. Is that who right? Is ga- who is gaining anything from travelling further for a League Two game than a London club has to to go to Northern Germany for a Champions League match? It's utterly, utterly ludicrous. And if Macclesfield played in a Northern division rather than in League Two, so you amalgamated the clubs from League One and League Two as they are now and split them as the most north, 24 of the most northerly clubs, 24 of the most southern clubs. There's one or two in the middle who might have to switch from one to the other occasionally. But Macclesfield would shave, would shave two and a half thousand miles off their travel every season, and they would have maybe. One in three of their games would be considered a local derby, which would bring in more money, more fans through the gate, more people showing interest in it, building rivalries over time that would benefit everybody involved. About the only people who wouldn't like it would be the police because it would be tougher to police those games. And that is understandable. But it's utterly, utterly ludicrous that that League Two clubs are doing journeys upwards of seven or 800 mile round trips to play each other when there's absolutely nothing to be gained from it. Uh, I'm going to go to Chinch next because um, if I go to Rory, he'll tell the story about his granddad playing in uh, both North and South divisions. Look at him nodding. And that's my way of making making sure it doesn't happen for the 18th time in podcast history. But Chinch as a player, would you care? Would you consider it as um, competitive, as lucrative, as sensible for the upward trajectory of your career, which of course your career had a great deal of? Would it matter to you as a player to be playing in League One North, League Two South, League Two, you know, any sort of combinations? Does it make any difference? I appreciate you didn't go down that low mm-hmm. as a player, which is, again, uh, more evidence to, <laughs> to, to support what I just said. Shut up, Smith. Um, 
I, I think there comes a point when you've got to think beyond the players. Players will play wherever you tell them to. And if you were to change this to the, to the wire f- format, which I, I think we should seriously take up, players would just get used to that very quickly and play who they play. It's about the survival of the clubs. And with what's happened with the drop-off in football, we've realised in Leagues 1 and 2 just how close to the wire so many clubs are. That This, I do feel, would be a good way of giving the clubs a, a better chance of survival. It'll still be competitive. The players, as I say, I don't think they'll be concerned. They'll just play whatever games are in front of them. We might get more fans travelling to games because they're not travelling the great distances as well. So it might actually revive Leagues 1 and 2. And it, it, it would be interesting to, to... I don't see any problem in, in giving it a go. I don't know what the, the major issue would be in, in giving it a try because with what's happened with COVID, it is about financially keeping these clubs afloat. And this could be a way of doing it. But if you could add an average, you know, if Mac, and I picked Macclesfield because they're a club in dire financial straits. They could potentially be the next to go. What happens to Berry could well happen to them. So you have to be looking at ways that we can protect these clubs and give them an opportunity to survive if we are going to persist with this idea that we need 92 league clubs in this country for, for some utterly absurd reason. That by adding maybe 500 people a week to Macclesfield's gates because they're playing local games would make a, make a massive difference to them. The main argument for it is ecological, to be honest. The, 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 there is a cross-benefit, and that's why they were, re- were regionalised in the first place. But the, the reason to do it now is, is to reduce the carbon footprint of the clubs. There's, there, there, it's, it's insane to be having teams... Yeah. Carlisle travelling to Torquay. I realise Torquay have now been relegated, but you know the journeys are that distance. It's it's nuts. There is no reason to do it. The, that that I think is the most compelling argument. But Chris Lomax uh, makes the point that it might create more of a divide between kind of League One, League Two, the third tier, and the Championship, and that then increases that cliff edge where if you drop out of the Championship, you are then in kind of this wasteland of regionalised football. And I think that is the, that's the only drawback to it, that you'd have to find a way of increasing the solidarity payments from the very top to lead one and lead two to, re- to regionalise and then ensure that teams that were going up to the championship were able to compete in some way in the championship. I, I think, think that's Chris, the, the drawback. Yeah, Chris has got a good point there and it's something that would need to be kept an eye on. But is the, is the difference in level between leagues one and two significant enough that in amalgamating them into north and south, you, you'd still end up with just as, you know, half the teams in the, you know, it is a fairly even 50-50 split between north and south in League One and League Two. It's, it's slightly more south in League Two and north in League One. That's but you'd still end up the country. Well, <laughs> slightly still, better in the north. You'd still, end, you'd still end up with 12 pretty strong teams in, in each division who... You, would reckon that they were capable of making the step up. Uh, Stephen, there are a lot of people getting involved on the chat, which uh, Rory's already mentioned and got himself involved with. I'll let you uh, answer some of those questions hereafter because there's lots of um, people who are supportive of you and some of them uh, who aren't. But bearing in mind that it's uh, a group chat between the 25 of us or so, I'll uh, (laughs) not necessarily read out everything for the uh, wider audience to... I'm going to need more coffee. Colin, thank you very much indeed for that question. Our next one comes from Hans Martin Ishida. And now stand up, Hans Martin, because are you wearing what I think can only be described as uh, the cladding of the mighty Minstermen? Yes, I knew it would wear for you because my family friends um, from Birmingham, uh, England, were coming over to visit um, me, uh, not me in D.C., and I asked them to get a York City shirt because you cannot get them, believe it or not, you cannot get them shipped across the Atlantic Ocean. 
Um, and they only just launched their online store this past summer. Big moves. They only just got the internet in York. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're providing 100% of the revenue, so thank you for that. What is your question, Hans Martin? Uh, so, so my question is, okay, in the spirit of, of football coming back in unconventional shapes or, or guys is like, you know, the ghost games in Germany or like what's being proposed in MLS here in the States with the localized um, mini tournaments in, in Orlando or the, for the NWSL and out in Utah. Um, do any of you guys have like favorite leagues or competitions that are, are less traditional in their structure or, or less visible to like, the mainstream football fan? I'm thinking of how much Rory loves the Apertura and Clausura in Argentina and his great article about Greenland's league, uh, I think from last summer. Um, but I mean, like that. I personally try to follow some small things. I'm, as a Japanese American, I try to watch the Japanese national team at the Asian Cup, um, time zones permitting. But yeah, because I think they're just fun to see new jerseys, uh, new players, things like that. Well, I think uh, Stephen and I can respond to that quite quickly by uh, saying that we enjoy 10th tier non-league football at our local uh, West Virginia mm. in Chilton FC. Uh, Rory, is there anything that you'd like to add in terms of uh, anything other than the Argentinian league? I do quite like the, the the kind of having two two titles in a season. Do they do a playoff do, between the, in the Apertura and Clausura? That, that would make sense to me. Like you play off the winners of each playoff for the for the title. I actually quite like playoff systems. I, I don't object to like the MLS playoffs. I think are quite is quite a good idea because people do like those dramatic games late on, and you, you still get that chance of drama and it's slightly unpredictable and sometimes the best team doesn't win. And there is, there is a benefit to that for all that we all love the purity of the, the round Robin league system. Um, I don't know if I haven't necessarily have a favorite. I, I've been become a big advocate of the Swiss model of splitting the lead for next season so that you can have a shorter league season in the major leagues, which buys you enough slack uh, to, to complete a season. If we get another set of lockdowns in like November, December, that's a bit depressing thinking about that. Um, I don't know, I, but then the main one that I like is Greenland, where I think I think everyone should just play everything in one week. I think that, I don't see don't see why you wouldn't do that. It's that the whole place just stops to watch fairly. No, to be I was gonna make a sarcastic comment there, but it's not true. Like that's surprisingly good standard of football, even though it's fully amateur. Um, just play it all in a week. Just let us all have fifty-one weeks of the year in complete lockdown, then one week of football, and then we can get on with our lives. That works. I don't know. I don't know if I have a. What do you think of the? Is it the NWSL is talking about playing? the whole season in one month in Utah for some reason. Yeah. What do you think what do you think to that? I mean I you know it's kind of necessary, I mean, especially given the financial constraints that the NWSL is kind of under compared to you know, they're aiming to be one of the first leagues back here in the States, even maybe kind of around or but I think they've already scheduled it for the end of July or end of starting end of June, I think. I can't remember. because um, they want to get going because again they need they need the revenue and you know they you know, after, after the last World Cup, you know, they need to get some big sponsors coming on to support the league more, um, which is important, and to keep it going because it is the longest-lasting um, women's league here in the States for, for football. But, you see, I, I do what this is. A, this is actually maybe a, a, a topic we could do as a separate podcast. But I, So I've, I, the WSL is cancelled in, in Britain, so they, they, they just been to women's football. No one seemed to... It was a really mature discussion, which says a lot about the difference between women's and men's football, but no one seemed to ask why the big men's clubs who, who financially support the women's teams couldn't just pay them throughout and then they finish the season whenever it's, it's viable to do it. They are... Those, most of those women's teams are dependent on, to a greater or lesser extent, on the income from men's football for their budgets. So the men have basically just cut them loose, which I think is disgraceful. But I do wonder whether the, what the NWSL have done 
could maybe in an ideal world would maybe make people want ask questions about whether the economic model of women's football has to follow the Victorian economic model of men's football. Because it could be, and I know that we'll, we'll lose Ray here certainly and anyone else who doesn't like cricket, but it, I don't know. I don't know whether it maybe the, the model in cricket where you have players who can go and play different tournaments throughout the year, the, the big bash, the IPL, the other one, uh, the Caribbean, what's the one called in the Caribbean? Is that the Big Bash? No, that's the Caribbean Premier League. The Big Bash is in Australia. Just that's say right. just say 2020 leagues around the world. Rory, 2020 leagues. Intelligent and you cover it. 2020 leagues around the world. I don't, it might be that that might actually be a viable model for women, for professional women's, women's football. And I, I, it's almost anathema to suggest that as a man, it's not for us to sort of tell women's football how to be run. But I do wonder whether women's football in the future, in the kind of post-coronavirus world might need to look and say look we don't necessarily we've definitely covered this before there's no reason at all for women's football to copy the structure of men's football because if you were designing men's football now you wouldn't design it as it is not a chance you'd do something completely different uh, Hans Martin thank you very much indeed uh, for the question a lot of American sports are trying the um, the hub idea aren't they the NHL has gone straight to the playoffs Steve will know the NBA thinking about doing it the MLS as was mentioned before thinking about doing it as well just playing all in one place which has been mentioned uh, rather comically uh, in terms of a, a, some sort of solution for the Premier League and others but it hasn't necessarily worked either with the neutral venues idea or the, the stupid thing that never got off the ground quite rightly about sending it all over to birth. You will not be surprised to hear that the Zoom group chat that is going on uh, as we are speaking is not only showing signs of everybody becoming much less interested in the conversation that we're having, but it has also uh, denigrated to, the, to, to taking the mick out of chinch for both hot dogs and super dry. So I'm glad to see that you're all playing along in the, in the right spirits. Uh, Hans Martin, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we have a couple of questions uh, here about the transfer market. They come from Chris Lomax and Jack Spedding. So unmute yourselves, gents, and let's start with Chris. Afternoon, gents. Um, so my question is, with, with FFP kind of really taking hold, COVID-19 and the Premier League income, sponsorship income and TV revenue kind of capping a little bit, applicated, do you think that we're going to get the same level of transfers that we're used to with the likes of Mbappe, Neymar and Pogba going for large fees, or are we going to move to players plus cash. Chris, thank you for our global listeners. Uh, that is a Bolton accent. Um, Jack? Similar sort of vibe, really. Um, do we think there's actually going to be a transfer market this summer? And uh, if teams don't really have the funds to buy who they like anymore, will that promote more youth development, like what we've seen at Chelsea due to their transfer ban? Or do we think it's just going to be a case of the big players, the big teams, sorry, we'll just buy the players they want from the lesser teams because they can't afford to keep them anymore. Stephen, we'll start with you. One of my neighbours who I've been getting to know during lockdown as we have our socially distanced coffees on a Sunday morning and uh, alcoholic drinks on a Friday night or whenever anyone else is wandering <laughs> Sunday, around the street. Sunday lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, Sunday lunchtime. He is, he's a builder and he's got a small building firm and he's been building a, a, a pair of semi-detached houses in quite a nice um, suburb of South Manchester, Bowdoin. And a lot of his business is, is drilled into that project. And lockdown came just as he was finishing off those properties. And obviously he was rather worried about it. And he found himself in an incredible situation where some local agents with maybe slightly dodgy desires to fulfill decided that they would start approaching him and finding out how much the project had cost him and offering him a very small amount above that 
to take the properties off his hands, just in case he was concerned about my, what might happen to the property market going forward. And that did make me think that that's the kind of thing that we might see over the next couple of transfer windows, cash-rich clubs trying to leverage a deal here and there from those who find themselves suddenly in need of revitalizing their cash flow and being concerned as to whether the the asset that they've got hold of that was worth 50 million quid before lockdown might only be worth 25 million pounds now and they'd be better to take that offer at the moment rather than risk it plummeting even further that is my concern for the upcoming transfer windows just in case steve you thought that uh, you were making some points that that tickled the fancies of a lot of people who are uh, smiling in their little boxes it's not it's just because the uh, again the zoom chat has... i'm, ig- I'm ignoring is anyone paying attention to anything any of us are saying quite <laughs> certainly not no, it's got, never it's, it's gone not only parochial it's also gone um anti-arsenal which is something that the internet doesn't take very long to do very often uh, rory over to you um Mauro Icardi costs 50 million quid. What? What are PSG doing? It's ridiculous. <laughs> that was a statement of, yeah, we, we, look, lads, everything's normal for us. We've got a whole country behind us. We can do what we like. We're going to sign Mauro Icardi, this player that we don't really need, for 50 million quid, plus seven in bonuses. I think, you'll, I think that Man City and PSG will be the only two teams unaffected. I think it would be understandable and predictable and entirely foreseeable if they were to try and strengthen as much as they can this summer when the market will be sluggish and FFP will be relaxed when this summer being whenever the transfer window tends has to end up happening. Um, I think everybody else will be affected in some way that no football club makes such profits that, that they, that they can kind of absorb a, the loss of a season's match day income without noticing it. So in the chat, someone's mentioned Liverpool apparently pulling out, of the Timo Werner deal or saying that they'll only pay 30 million quid. Um, I think the other thing that we have to be aware of though, is there's, there's a lot of haggling going on. So in the last few weeks, I've spoken to my close personal friend, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, who, whose view was that there's, there's, no, there's no, there's no value in the market. There's no, you know, that the transfer fees will be very low and all that. And you think, well, yeah, that's, that's obviously what you'd say because you're trying to buy players. So you, you're obviously gonna be like, yeah, look, we've run out of money. Can't do it. Just don't have any money at all. Whereas clubs that are selling will, will kind of, I spoke to Gank, I think. The, Gank or, or Gent. was it Gent? I can't remember. <laughs> I get really confused. Which one's KRC? Gank. Is that Gent? Gent is AA. Oh, hang on. No, I mean Gent. <laughs> um, the, the... That needs to be your intro for the piece that you write eventually about yeah. this. No, I had to, well, no, I've already written it. So I had to, um, I had to go through it and check each individual one. I was completely confused by the end of it. And the irony is that by the end of it, I was even more confused about which one I meant. Um, but anyway, they, their view is, oh yeah, the market for young players who've done well in Belgium for two years, that's going to remain completely consistent because why would, why would the price drop? Um, I think this summer there'll be lots of loans. The, the impact will be in sort of next year, the year after, the year after, because clubs aren't, every single club is going to face some sort of shortfall of income PSG and Man City will be not immune to that but kind of they, they will be able to cushion the blow a little bit more if they relax FFP um, everybody else I think might struggle a bit and so it may well be the case that yeah the talent will will shift towards the the bigger clubs for less money but in terms of things like Liverpool saying oh we're not interested in Werner I would imagine that is a posture 
more than anything else. And it'd be the same with, with Bayern saying we're not, we can't pay for Sane or um, Real Madrid or Barcelona saying, look, we're, we're out of money. We can't do this, that or the other. I think there is a lot of posturing going on at the moment. It's just a different reason for the same games to be yeah. played, a different environment in which to do a different context, but the same games will be played throughout this period. It's the same, same reason why any club or any agent or any player would, would speak out or... Uh, under the condition of an anonymity as a source, which is something that frustrates Rory, as we all know. We uh, thank Chris and Jack, and we move on to our final three short-fire questions to get our 11 in for our Select 11. In a moment, we'll be promoting somebody from the substitutes bench. But first, I would like to bring in Ahmed Youssef. Ahmed, uh, would you like to ask your question? And we will uh, require a name from those involved in the podcast. So think upon this from Ahmed. Go. Um, yeah, so as you have already talked about the last dance a couple, uh, was it last week? Um, I guess, who is football's Michael Jordan? And I don't just mean like the greatest player. I mean, someone who's changed the sport commercially, globally, um, on the pitch and has the cult of personality that's backed up their ability. Um, not to mention the ability to not only bow on their own terms, but they have just the great uh, second act as their first. And in the case of Jordan, retiring almost for two years and then coming back to win another 3 P. Um, and I don't think it's messy. Uh, he's as dull as footballers come. Yes. <laughs> I mean, thank you very much indeed. So we're ruling out Messi. I'm going to go first because just in case uh, one of the other uh, guys have this and I want to steal it. Um, I'm going to say based on the fact, and you'll notice it in the last dance if you've seen it, the way that Michael Jordan was able to cross the kind of cultural divide and also the geographical divide of the great Atlantic Ocean, which uh, tends to be enough of a barrier for American sports to not be able to transverse. But uh, when you see him in Paris and you see the amount of uh, people who are there out to see just Michael Jordan. You have to think about a cultural phenomenon, as Ahmed said, who is able to be, oh, I don't know anything about that sport, but I know that person who plays that sport. Um, so I'm going to say David Beckham. David Beckham is one of those people, and, and the Americans who are watching will appreciate that when he went to, to, to the Galaxy, and even before that, he was the guy that you would sense from a non-football fan, a non-soccer fan, that they would either recognize, or if they were asked to name one player, they would be able to do that. Um, he was able to clearly make a huge difference in uh, MLS when he went over there. So that kind of ticks that box. Uh, and finally, just on a statistical level, he won six Premier League titles. So that uh, meant that uh, when I was trying to decide, that would be the easiest way of doing it. Chinch, can you give us an answer for the Michael Jordan um, of football? I, I think we don't talk, say yourself. No, I, I don't think I come into the, the top million, five million even. <laughs> I, I suppose you can't, uh, we talked about this in the podcast when we, you were discussing the last dance and Michael Jordan. There's no one who really in football is, is equates to Michael Jordan. But suppose, the only person I can think of is Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of his, um, again, status off the pitch and what he's achieved on it. That's not saying he, he definitely is like Michael Jordan, but I just think in terms of, of the stature of the person, uh, of what he's done for clubs and his country, um, Ronaldo would be the obvious choice for me. Ronaldo's the choice for me as well, but the other one, the actual one. Ronaldo rather than Cristiano. I think he doesn't... The one thing that he, he lacks is a Champions League winner's medal and the, kind of this, the, the crowning second act that Jordan had. And also Ronaldo never went off to play another sport for a bit. Um, but then, to be fair, neither did David Beckham. Uh, <laughs> well, David, David Beckham has taken up crown green balls and is now, <laughs> now a world champion. And, it, and if it wasn't for the crown green, green balls players' strike... 
in the then mid-90s, he, yeah. he would have definitely succeeded at it. No, but I think if you, if you looked at the legacy of Ronaldo, Ronaldo Phenomeno, um, he is basically, the, he inspired a whole generation of players. He won an awful lot of stuff. I think he was, in a way, the f- just before Beckham, he was the first truly international superstar of the modern era. I think like the, the, the whole 98 World Cup, 90s campaign was built around him. The kind of the f- level of fame he had was enormous. And the other thing is, I think you can just about break his career down into kind of the explosion of talent between 94, 95, 94. Who's in the World Cup? World Cup in 94, to be fair. So like 93 to 98, the World Cup final. And then he comes back to this triumphant 2002, uh, winning the World Cup, goes on to play for Real Madrid, doesn't ever win the Champions League, but kind of becomes this, has his, has that moment where he comes back and all is well again in Japan and Korea. So I would probably say uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo. Stephen. Yeah, thanks. So you've basically, I, I go last after. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Stephen the pitch, Gael Jive, the former Blackburn <laughs> Rovers defender. Stefan Chapuchois. There was too much misophonia in that one. So I'm going to explain why you're all right. Rory's right because the original Ronaldo was such an inspirational figure, seemingly to so many players in various different positions. They didn't aspire to be like him. They were inspired by him. Uh, Chinch is right because Cristiano Ronaldo uh, is the closest that football's got to somebody that can leap as high as Jordan. And Hugh is right uh, because in terms of the merchandise, one thing that football doesn't have as an equivalent is that sort of that merchandising thing, that that brand or that that footwear that is iconically associated to just one person. But probably Beckham with the Predator boots comes as close whilst we know that that Messi wears Adidas and we know Ronaldo wears Nike. And we know that Chinch Beckham, wears Kronos gold Kronos, boots. Chinch, Chinch wore gold Kronos boots. I never but, wore them. <laughs> only just a, only in a photo shoot. I wore white boots once. That's as, that's as far as I got. Be- Beckham's, Beckham's predators were, the, in terms of a, a football boot that you associated with a footballer, was about as big a deal as it got. Uh, we're going to move on to the second of our three final questions, and it comes from Asim Modi. Asim, come in, unmute yourself, and uh, tell us your question. Uh, first, before the question, Hugh, huge fan of the Michigan shirt. I also, uh, as in, this is also just more Michigan propaganda, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, so my, my question is this. So, you know, we, all of us are in, in lockdown to some degree or another. Most of us have done well with the quarantine rules. Some people have not. And so I wanted to talk about one of those exceptions and ask, you know, if you were to make a Dominic Cummings-esque breakout from lockdown to cover <laughs> any match, to make cover any match ever played in Britain, uh, what would it be? Would, for example, Anfield 89 be your Barnard Castle? Uh, or would you, would you, would you want to, would you test your eyesight by, by getting, going to the Etihad in, in 2012 to cover City QPR? Really just, you know, what match would you want to cover so badly that you would risk public humiliation and backlash, albeit without any consequence? Well, we'll start this time with Steve for two reasons. First of all, because he went last uh, on the previous question. Uh, and second of all, because he is the one amongst the four of us who is known to break all manner of uh, both social and uh, other rules. So, uh, Stephen, over to you. Really? I'm, I'm offended. I'm, I'm very much the law-abiding citizen of the group, am I not? 
Think we should, uh, in the current climate, we should make it clear that we are all law-abiding citizens. <laughs> well, I, don't I, know, I thought the point was that Dominic Cummings made it that we didn't have to, but still, uh, Stephen. Can, can I just check with Asim, does it have to be UK-based? Or, or am I allowed to break lockdown to the point where I stroll through an airport? <laughs> kind of the yes, point I, is, I want to do the same. I want to do the same. The restrictions are there for the thematic reasons that uh, I think Asim very, very cleverly explained. Because uh, I was going to go... I was going to go... Drive. Go on. Are you going to be able to drive? Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe the, the, original, the original Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3, just for a dart down the East Lanks Road to take in one of that, what feels like an iconic Premier League match. If I was able to jump in the DeLorean to take, because you've already mentioned a couple of really good, good examples. So one that seems to have developed a, a legacy all of its own. So to have that I was there moment, maybe, maybe one of those Liverpool four, Newcastle three games where, you know, you could really be a badge of honour to say that you were there for that. Rory's doing that uh, staring into the middle distance thing, which suggests he's still thinking. So, Chinch, bearing in um, mind that you're already at the 1995 FA Cup final, is there any other game yeah. that you'd like to attend? Um, I'm, I'm going to mention a game that I, I want to relive as a player because I was a formidable player. But if I could get on a plane, it'd be the 1978 World Cup final because the Ticket 8 World Cup, Mario Kempes, was what really got me interested in football at a, a very, very young age in 78. Um, so, if I could get on a plane, that's the, that's the game I'd go to. But... Um, it has to be, if I could, can I relive, can I relive a glorious, glorious, so it's either the, the Manchester Derby, the 5-1 Manchester Derby in 89, or the Everton-Liverpool FA Cup draw, 4 all draw, where Everton came from a goal down each time to, to draw 4 all. because I just remember, it's, it's making me tingly in all the right places, just thinking about that game, that 4 all draw. At Did you play in that? Watch the first goal. I ran 60 yards to clear the ball off the line and then Peter Beersley just stroked it nonchalantly in to make it 1-0 to Liverpool. But we came back and back and back and beat them 1-0 on the replay. But that, that game was to play in. Yeah, and the 5-1 Manchester Derby, they're, they're extraordinary game. And if you were covering them, Rory, oh, you wouldn't be looking at your phone. You'd be watching the, the, the blonde bombshell down the left flank. Steve Staunton. <laughs> He was a centre-half. Um, that explains why they're letting four goals. Um, Steve, Steve mentions that, Steve says the fourth, Liverpool, Newcastle 4-3. But as a, I, I've been to so many games as a journalist that I don't want anything with a last-minute winner, thanks very much. That sounds awful. Um, the, I'm going to go Ponzi and go for England 3, Hungary 6 in 1953. The game, the Magic Magyar game, that sort of kind of was England's first ever home defeat. Uh, it was the game that proved that foreigners had actually some ability at playing, playing football and it was Pushtius, it was Trotchus, it was Nando Hidaguti. That's the game I'd do. When did Jonathan Wilson dial in? <laughs> Very, come on, come on, Steve. We're all football historians here. That's Jonathan Wilson Light there, the New York Times soccer The Aldi Wilson. Uh, Rory Smith. Um, well, if, if I can't go back knowing what I know now to watch Andy Hinchcliffe score a fifth goal in a Manchester derby, uh, I'd like to, despite being a cynical journalist like the rest of us, actually know what it feels like for England to win a World Cup. So the 1966 World Cup final will be an interesting sociological study, if not necessarily a footballing one. Uh, thank you very much indeed for the question, Asim. Now we're going to promote somebody from the substitutes bench. And it's actually some, I'm doing something a little bit naughty here because it comes from Duncan Millen. And Duncan, if you can see uh, Duncan, wave Duncan so that we can all look at you. 
Thank you. This is really, really um, a, an appalling thing to do. But your question was about the colour of the hair of some footballers. And as we bring you into shots, we can perhaps understand why you had this question that we can deal with rather quickly. And if you could direct it at Stephen, uh, we'd be very oh, grateful. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, cheers, Hugh. This has caught me on the hopper a little bit here. Uh, big fan of the podcast. I've listened to every, every single one. And one of the repeated themes that keeps coming up is... Uh, Steve not being a huge fan of uh, red hair. I'm not sure if it's his kids, someone else's kids. Um, so, yeah. Uh, my question was, given the dearth of footballing superstars and players with red hair, Paul Skulls aside, do red-haired players and, and managers get a fair crack at the whip? I, I can tell you, Duncan, is a proud owner of two red-headed children, that it is the, the last... Uh, the last remaining bastion of discrimination <laughs> that needs to be overcome in order for them to be able to thrive and fulfill their, their potential. Sadly, neither one of them is showing any signs of being good enough at football to, uh, to, to, to make the grade, although uh, one of them perhaps could take over as Ale from Alex Bogdan, the, uh, the former Bolton... Was he, was Alex yeah. Bogdan? Adam, Adam yeah. Bogdan. Adam, Adam, yeah. Adam Bogdan, Bogdan the, the former uh, red-headed Bolton goalkeeper. No, absolutely. Red-headed red -headed people. Uh, other than my gorgeous partner, Katie, who obviously has, uh, has had the opportunity to spend her life with me, so therefore has fulfilled every possible potential. Um, yeah, no, you're right. Um, <laughs> so, Steve, right, the kids having red hair, is that more of a drawback for their futures than you being their father? Because, of course, you've set such very, very high standards. Yeah, and the fact that they spent the last 10 weeks being homeschooled by me, I mean, that's really put the handbrake on as well, Chin. And one of the issues that I think Paul Scholes certainly uh, found during his career is that didn't, didn't uh, one of your children get sunburned just playing a casual game of football in your backyard <laughs> earlier on this week? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's quite, quite painful. And that was my fault as well, by the way. Are there more <laughs> red-haired people in football than is the incidence in the population as a whole? That feels like a kind of question that nobody would be able to statistically or correctly I'd answer. Say, I'd say still. no. Duncan, how many red-headed <laughs> red people are there in the population as a whole? I, I guess less than 2%. I guess. What? It feels like there's quite a lot of ginger footballers. You'd, you'd think us gingers would carry that kind of stat around with us. I, I mean, I'm disappointed <laughs> in a lot of ways that you don't. Do you not, do you not have on some sort of identification card or something like that? So you can Katie your would back know. Pocket. Katie would know. Stephen, you've got an opportunity to go and find oh, out from her. Maybe, maybe they thrive more in the Northern European leagues that don't get as much attention as they should. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, he's got some paddles with 10 on just to <laughs> illustrate <laughs> is, that. Is Ewan still here? Ewan's still here. Ewan, are there loads of ginger players in Scotland? Not as many as you'd think. Alex McLeish was the only one I could think of. <laughs> but very ginger. Very ginger. <laughs> and one of the things you'll find is that uh, anybody who does well, unfortunately, cannot shake it off as being part of their identity. They cannot just, uh, I don't know, just evaporate into the general footballing society because when Gary Megson achieved any sort of notoriety and Chris will know about this uh, as a person from Bolton um, he was called the Ginger Mourinho basically on finishing I think 12th so yeah, if that's the, the case you're all ruined on the chat there's Sean Dykes there's yeah, not Sean that they're Dykes, here yeah. Jordan Strachan <laughs> McLeish Strolls Kevin De Bruyne who Chris Wright insists is strawberry blonde but is is definitely just ginger the there's lots of gingers. This That's is not a many. scandal. That's not many, Rory, is it? That's not many. Steve I think, Sidwell. I think the Warren. fact that you can name them and yeah, be I could do, satisfied I could do that, that you've with, named everybody. I could do that with midfielders of, of, of other hair colours too. But what, you wouldn't what? be able to, at the end of it, think that, yeah, we've pretty much got that covered, haven't we? That's no, everybody. I'm now thinking there's loads more. <laughs> Uh, well, I tell you what, we're going to now sign off on the broadcast part and uh, there can be a podcast uh, 
chat between 25 people about ginger footballers. Duncan, thank you very much indeed. And I'll tell you what, everybody who won't be involved next week, let's try it again, shall we? To Rory and to Steve and to Andy. Uh, keep your correspondence coming uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com or indeed on a private Zoom chat, should you want to do that yourselves. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve and Andy and Rory, our virtual audience of SPM listeners and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Everybody's applauding. Unfortunately, they're clap. all muted. Just sort of, you want to sort of go around like that. Oh, yes. Will you all please clap to all four parts of the room? All four parts in? of the room. This is all four it's parts like a Bundesliga social distancing high five. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, genuinely, thank you to everybody um, for taking time out of your day, particularly if you're in a crazy part of the world. Um, uh, so thank you to all. Um, so a big goodbye from me. I'm going to get rid of you. If you don't get rid of yourselves individually, I'm going to get rid of you. Thank so, you very thank much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Really, 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 really enjoyed it. Thanks thank a lot. You. Thank you. Take care and Good speak luck. to you all Good soon, luck. hopefully. Thank you. Now they're all in spirit. It's frightening. It's frightening. <laughs> it's like people are being oh, erased. Oh, oh, this is painful. This is so <laughs> painful. I missed them all. Who's going to be the last one? Asim, you're the winner. He's still there. You're not allowed to stay, Asim. I'm sorry. Cheers, Asim. See ya.